Hey guys, it's Dr. Childs here. Today I am joined by a very special guest and that is Dr. Alan Christensen. Dr. Alan Christensen is a board certified naturopathic endocrinologist who focuses on thyroid care. He is a New York Times bestselling author whose recent titles include The Thyroid Reset Diet and The Metabolism Reset Diet. Dr. Christensen has been featured on countless media outlets with appearances on, the doc on Dr. Oz, The Doctors, and The Today Show. He is the founding president of the American of the Endocrine Association of Naturopathic Physicians and the American College of Thyroidology. So, Dr. C, welcome to the show. Hey, Weston. Thank you so much for having me. Good to be here with you. No problem. I think we're going to have uh, some some great conversations here about thyroid controversies, which is what we're going to be talking about. Not so much uh, controversy between you and I, but just controversial <laughs> topics in general, right? Um, so what I wanted to do, actually, just on a personal note here, Dr. C, I just want to tell you that I'm very grateful for all the information that you provided. I think anybody who has been following me or you know, probably is aware of your work um, and you've done some amazing work and just in research in general. And so I'm really grateful for what you've done. And it's pretty obvious to me that you care a lot about thyroid patients. So thank you for all the stuff that you've done. I appreciate that. Thank you. No problem. And what I'd like to do um, is just get started a little bit. So people, maybe if they don't know you, just to get to know you a little bit better. So could you tell us a little bit about your own story and maybe what led you to getting into helping thyroid people and people with adrenal problems and kind of focusing on the things that you do? Yeah, uh, thank you for that. You know, I had callings toward medicine early along in life. Um, I was an epileptic kid, uh, likely had cerebral palsy, pretty bad coordination issues, mm. and put on a ton of weight in adolescence. You know, and I hit a real crisis. I mean, adolescence is tough, oftentimes best case scenarios, but yeah. I moved a lot. I was always the new kid. I was a fat kid. I was ostracized, you know, it was not as common of a thing then, and fat mm -hmm. shaming was just normal. It wasn't like really anything unusual. Uh, and I was always nerdy and into books and somewhere along the way, I started grabbing health books and it, I don't know, it changed my life. I realized that, you know, my health affected my, my quality of life. It affected how I was seen socially and that information could change that. And it was this huge empowerment's kind of a cheesy term, I guess, but it really was that I really realized that I could take control over this and that things that I learned could make a difference. And it made me want to go into this whole field. And I came into medicine. I learned about the naturopathic medical profession that could allow me to put a lot of lifestyle emphasis onto it. Mm -hmm. And then early along, I saw that thyroid disease was so radically differently viewed. There was some just now that some of the ideas even then were even further apart. You know, normal ranges for TSH was as high as 12 when I started practicing and wow. so many were suffering. And there was also approaches that were blatantly unsafe. People were dying from some of the other radical views that were being done. Mm -hmm. And I saw people that they were struggling with the same things I'd struggled with, but lifestyle alone wasn't enough. Mm. You know, they, they had to really get things right before some of those things could work. And it just really drove me that direction. And that was, uh, yeah, 25 years of practice focusing on that. And it's been, been a real calling. Yeah. And you've done a lot of work in those years, I have to say. So like I said, I'm very grateful for that. Um, one of the things that you touch on, I think is, is so huge. And that's this idea that, um, the impact that the thyroid can have, especially on things that impact your, your, uh, how self-conscious you are, things like hair loss, things like your weight. And these are real big issues for a lot of people. Right. And mm -hmm. I'm sure you've seen it. I see it a lot. And, you know, my heart breaks for these people because I know that that's such a tough thing to live with. And obviously, you know, this is something that you've gone through personally. And so, um, that's why I think it's easy to get passionate behind these things, because if you take somebody who has 
let's say dealt with these symptoms for 10 plus years. And that's, you know, not uncommon time frame, right? We're talking about yeah. people who've had these issues for so long and then help them to get out of these things or to improve their hair, their hair growth, or to help them lose weight. I think it goes a long way. Um, and it feels good. You know, there's not a lot of big, big wins per se in medicine. You know, if you're like treating blood pressure or something like that, you know, it's, right. it's, it's hard to see, it's hard to feel that on the side of the patient. But um, so thank you for that introduction. What I'd like to do is talk a little bit more about thyroid patients and what I refer to as getting back to 100%. Mm -hmm. And so um, in my experience, I kind of see a lot of thyroid patients who uh, are continuing to struggle, right? They're, they're doing the things that are right, and yet they still have persistent symptoms, a lot of different things that they're dealing with. So do you have any explanation for why that may be? Do you believe perhaps that they're being mismanaged, undertreated? Do you think it's caused by something else? What, what is explaining this discrepancy between thyroid patients who are on treatment, but not feeling 100%? You know, that's such a glaring problem and the conventional world is very aware of that. You know, I, well, I think we'll talk about a lot of these topics in more detail, but I'll first give a quick high level overview about them. So mm -hmm. the three big things I think are relevant are <clears throat> um, many are put in medicines that they were never really candidates to begin with. The medicines probably weren't expected to help them given the details of their scenario. And so the question is, how do I get the medicine right? But the deeper question is, was that even going to be helpful in the first place? So, and then when they're on the medicine, sometimes not only is it not a solution, but it can become a barrier. It can become an impediment for them. So if they're on them, it's figuring out, you know, do you really need that? And if, if you do, so be it, it should be right. If you don't, it should still be right during a transition process. So that, and that's something to where it's not the most important part, but it's something that's a real barrier. And it's a, you're taking a pill every day. So it's gotta be one that's gonna be not a barrier and helpful if it can be. And if not, you should be in a process of changing that. So that's one of the first steps I think about. Second one would be really getting iodine right. And we'll talk a lot more depth about that. You know, it can really make the body not respond well to thyroid hormones, wherever they're coming from. And the third one, I call these the comorbidities, the secondary conditions. There's been massive data sets showing that people with thyroid disease have any, any number of, of 15 different disease states that can be present along with that. Uh, there's things like latent iron depletion, there's parathyroid disease, there's uh, sleep apnea, there's um, early fatty liver. And each of these 15 conditions, there's more than 5% bidirectional overlap between them and thyroid disease. And so all too often, someone with thyroid disease has real symptoms, and they're trying so hard to get these levels right for their thyroid. And that may not be the thing causing the symptoms, or it may be partially causing it. So I think all too often those things can get missed and people overfocus on just the one factor. So those are the big three. You know, if, if you're on a pill, it's got to be one that's not getting in your way. And if you don't need it, you should know that. Getting the iodine right, understanding and addressing any of those secondary conditions. Okay. That, that's awesome, by the way. Let's definitely dive into each of these in a little more detail, like you mentioned, because um, I love the way you laid that out. The first one I want to do is let's jump into iodine, because I think, sure. at least from the perspective of thyroid patients, tons of, let's say, controversial opinions on, on iodine. And um, let's sort of get, let, get, get a little deeper into that. Now, the way that I kind of see it, the landscape is that we have a lot of different viewpoints on iodine, right? We have, we have doctors who are telling patients, you know, um, that you should avoid iodine 100%. We have some people who are saying, let's use the RDA sort of dose of iodine. And then we have people who are saying, let's take really high doses of iodine. And you kind of have these different, and there's probably some different camps in between. And we'll talk about these as we go. Um, what is the story from your perspective on iodine? How do you view iodine in the setting of thyroid disease? And then maybe we'll talk about Hashimoto's as we go, but where does it, where does iodine fit into this whole story? And I'll first address that. Then I'll very briefly mention how things have come to view where they are in the present and all the different views that yeah. we have. So the first thing is we got to differentiate iodine requirements from iodine tolerance. That's a very important distinction to make. 
Iodine requirements, um, and I should also back up, this is the most studied nutrient on the planet, bar none. We've studied this for longer amounts of time, larger data sets than any other nutrient. It's also the least intuitive nutrient on the planet. There's a lot of ways in which it defies the common rules of other nutrients. Mm -hmm. Vitamin C, you know, the RDA is often not optimal. We can do well with more than that. You're not mm -hmm. likely to be harmed from it. You know, it's easy to get good amounts, mm -hmm. but so many of those principles don't apply to iodine. So yeah, so requirements don't really differ past simple things like body weight and age and gender. They're pretty predictable. Mm -hmm. The tolerance differs tremendously. So the World Health Organization has tracked thousands and thousands of instances where iodine levels change throughout populations. And they found that iodine, iodine tolerance for some is between about like 50 and 200 micrograms. Mm -hmm. That's those who are prone to thyroid disease. Now, those who are clearly not prone to thyroid disease have probably have a tolerance up to about 1,100 micrograms on occasion, so no real ill effects. They don't need more, but more won't really hurt them. Mm -hmm. So it's not a matter of it being a good thing or a bad thing. We need some, but we just happen to need some in a, in a window. And the most bizarre thing about it is that that window is so narrow. For every other nutrient, the tolerance and the requirement windows are quite different. You know, vitamin C, our tolerance and our requirements, there's like a thousand or 10,000 fold difference there. You're not going to, you know, the, the amount you need is not close to too much. Mm -hmm. But for some people, the amount you need is close to too much for iodine. So that's the bizarre part. So yeah, we don't need none. We don't need massive amounts, but there's a range. And for, for some people, that range is narrower than others. And very briefly, in terms of the fact that we have a controversy, for quite a few years, iodine was used for a lot of things in medicine. It's an antimicrobial, it's an antiseptic, it does a lot of useful things. But generally, those applications kept going by the wayside when medicine found just safer ways to do all that and became more aware of the toxicity of iodine. You know, the old medicine bottles with skull and crossbones, iodine was a leading cause of suicide. It was the most popular means of suicide for quite a while. So yeah, so its use in medicine narrowed down there were always a few in medicine who kind of hung on to those old uses and said, we can still use iodine as an antiseptic. We can still use it for, you know, treating zits or all these various things that were kind of like very old folklore uses. Mm -hmm. But around the late nineties, there was a, a gynecologist kind man who became very enamored by iodine because of some papers of its use for treating fibrocystic breast disease. He wrote some massive documents he called the Iodine Project. He influenced some other doctors. He himself has passed on. I spoke to him a lot in detail about this, went through all of his works and was intrigued by it. But it really pushed me to look into the published known literature about iodine as well as the speculative literature. And sadly, a lot of the speculative literature is very intuitive. It's, it seems very to make sense and it's, and it's gone viral. So a lot of the ideas that are popular now are based upon these speculations but in many cases, they're pretty much the opposite of what we have from this massive data set of knowledge of iodine. Yeah, intuition is, is somewhat dangerous in medicine, right? And uh, you know, mm. you can you can think things are intuitive, and that could cause you to do things like surely the body must need this because of X, right. Y, and Z, right? But that mm. intuition, you know, this is the reason we have these studies. We have double-blind, placebo-controlled studies because you can't always trust your intuition when it comes to anything related to your health. And, and also consistency is a key, right? What may work for one person, if you can't mm -hmm. apply it to, you know, thousands, potentially millions of people, then, you know, you kind of have to evaluate this all in context, right? Now, I, I really was interested in something that you mentioned before and intuitively, you know, going back to this intuition thing, it makes sense that everyone has a different level of tolerance to iodine. Now, do you have any, any idea what would potentially cause that tolerance? Is this related to 
perhaps genetics or some other cause, maybe other nutrient status? Like what's your, what's your sort of uh, a feeling or idea as to why people have different tolerance levels to iodine? Those are both relevant. And the, the big picture sense we think is that humans have two main genotypes relative to um, the iodine symporter, the sodium iodide mm. symporter. And the idea is that we probably had humans that developed mostly near, uh, near aquatic areas that were near ocean sides. They had mm. a lot of a lot of shellfish, a lot of seafood, probably sea vegetables in their diets, they needed a larger iodine tolerance. And the flip side of that is the broader your tolerance of iodine is, the harder it is for you to get by on meager amounts of iodine. Mm. So the other groups of humans are probably more inland and some of them even like higher elevations around more freshwater. They had to do better at using every little speck of iodine they got. Mm -hmm. So they had to compromise their iodine tolerance. So we think those, that's the reason we got the main, the main genotypes that are present. And we know certain genes that are associated with deiodinase pathways, mm -hmm. but there's really not perfect gene tests that can say where someone falls in those categories. There's no way to, perfect way to predict that. It's really just whether or not someone's prone to thyroid disease. And you mentioned nutrients. We know for sure that once someone has their own given tolerance, if they're low in certain accessory nutrients that buffer iodine, especially selenium, mm -hmm. that can make their tolerance even narrower. So you have certain things, selenium, zinc, or iron are low, whatever their personal genetic tolerance is, that may be narrowed even further. Okay. Yeah. And, and that kind of leads me in a little bit to the, the next topic, which is Hashimoto's and iodine. And so we have, I think a lot of people out there have, who have been told to avoid iodine if they have Hashimoto's, you know, what is the connection between iodine intake and Hashimoto's? Is there a connection? You know, um, is there a way to prevent that connection? Uh, what's your sort of take on, on that connection there? You know, when we think about causal links, it's nice to have convergent multiple lines of evidence. So I think about, is there a mechanistic explanation for it? Is there some population studies that support an idea? And are there interventional trials? You know, all various types of data that you mentioned. So when we think first about the mechanistic link, we know that the thyroid makes hormones by basically stapling iodine onto a protein called thyroglobulin. Mm -hmm. The enzyme thyroid peroxidase oxidizes iodine into iodina and makes it single and ready to mingle, and then it sticks on a thyroglobulin. So thyroglobulin has roughly 13 tyrosol residues that are sites applicable for iodine to sit. <clears throat> but I think about the old videos of like all the clowns climbing, climbing into the little Volkswagen Beetle or something. You know, you can get more than 13, but they're not all in the right place. And so in a high iodine state, there can be as many as 60 iodine atoms that are somehow chemically associated with each molecule of thyroglobulin. They're not on proper tyrosol binding sites. So what happens is these recently oxidized iodine atoms are a source of free radicals and they can change thyroglobulin itself. They can make it antigenic. So the immune system treats it as foreign and they can cause a higher rate of cell death by the thyroid. The net consequence of that is it recruits the immune cells to attack thyroglobulin, sometimes also to attack thyroid peroxidase. So that's the main model of onset of Hashimoto's today. In terms of population studies, just two I'll highlight very briefly. So in the US, we started fortifying with iodine in 1924, mostly Michigan, it was all elective. And the following decades, the rate of Hashimoto's amongst women in their adulthood years went up 26 fold. So it was a rare disease before fortification. Denmark was the last big country to fortify. They did it in the year 2000. They did it flawlessly. They exactly went up by about 50 micrograms per day on target. But for the 17 years in which it was tracked, each year, the rates of thyroid disease went up by about 50%. Mm. 
And they track that in terms of prescriptions, diagnosis, procedures, all these things show this uptick of thyroid disease. So that's, and there's plenty of other examples of that. Mm -hmm. And then interventional studies, we've now had trials showing that people who are supplemented with iodine have emergent autoimmune thyroid disease that's at a dose response curve. So yeah, we see this converge from mechanistic models, population studies, and also interventional trials. And I would say, actually, I'm sure you've seen this as well from an anecdotal standpoint, I've absolutely seen people who have what seems to be triggering Hashimoto's or at least autoimmune thyroid disease, either Graves or Hashimoto's from really high doses of iodine. I'm sure yeah. you've, you've heard this, this story where somebody takes 50 milligrams of iodine for, you know, X amount of weeks, X amount of days, and now all of a sudden their thyroid antibodies are high. So we have, you know, mm-hmm. anecdotal is evidence is weak evidence, but it, you know, it's something that sure. I, I'm seeing. And That's what seen got well. me into this whole thing. And there's a patient I remember very well. He was mid seventies, like the healthiest guy you can imagine. Like, wow, mm. I want to be you when I'm older. And, yeah, yeah. and he was a snowbird. So he was back and forth. I'm in Arizona and he was back mm. and forth parts of the year. One year he came back down and he's got a toxic nodular goiter. I'm like, what's up with that? And it mm. came on after he was given a high dose of iodine for an iodine challenge test. Mm. And this was, this was like 2001 or so. It was all new stuff to me. And that's what got me going down the whole rabbit hole. Mm. But yeah, like you said, I've seen that countless of times. Mm-hmm. And I do want to talk about the iodine challenge test a little bit later, but, but before I do, because um, we'll get into iodine testing in just a second here, um, just reviewing my notes here. What I wanted to talk about a little bit was the connection between selenium and Hashimoto's just for a second, because I know that they're, you know, and maybe you can speak to these studies and if you think that they're um, significant or relevant, but there have been some studies that show that taking selenium may help to reduce thyroid antibodies. Um, you know, what do you make of those studies? And do you think it's through this mechanism of somehow selenium is protective, but only in certain cases, you know, what, what are you making of, of those studies? That, Cause I'm sure you've seen them. Sure. Yeah. Good data on that. Uh, beneficial to all facets of thyroid disease. Mm. And we know that selenium is the, 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 iodine, the, the thyroid itself. Imagine like the, the scientists with those massive long tongs and that smoking cauldron at the end of the mm. tongs. Yeah. That's how the body treats iodine. So it circulates in the form of iodide and that's pretty safe, but we only make iodine deliberately in specific places. So we've got a pump to pull it in. We've got an enzyme to activate it. That's when we've got the tongs out. Mm. And because iodine is such a powerful source of free radicals that allows it to make strong chemical reactions, which is good, but it's also harmful because of all the free radicals. Mm. So then we make our own internal antioxidants, superoxide dismutase, glutathione, and RF2. Many of these are selenium dependent. Mm. So that's a big factor for tolerating it. Then that's the internal production. Then we've got peripheral metabolism. And thyroid hormones are so powerful, they're controlled from above and below throughout the whole body. And most all those peripheral regulatory pathways are also selenium dependent. So Mm -hmm. yeah, selenium is incredible and important for all facets of that. And there's been data too showing that in areas that have endemic low selenium in soils, we'll also see higher rates of thyroid disease and more rates of negative reactions to iodine at levels that otherwise shouldn't be a problem. Hmm, okay. And, and then la- one last question sort of on this topic of Hashimoto's. Do you think that there's anything else that can account for the rise in the cases of Hashimoto's as iodine intake increases? Or is it pretty clear that these, these things are connected? Or could any potential other explanation, maybe other environmental factors, maybe just more you know, testing? Is there anything else that can account for that? Or is that, has that been taken into account for the studies? Well, more testing is always something to think about. Are we just catching more of it? Or is there more really hmm. there? 
So we also have to differentiate things that cause Hashimoto's from things that are associated with it mm -hmm. and things mm -hmm. that are also then comorbidities or things that may be contributors to some symptomology. Mm -hmm. you know, those are all different concepts, but a lot of things that I'll see in functional medicine kind of conflate them all together and sure. like treat them all as if they're causes. One recent meta-analysis went to set out to answer the question of, yeah, just what causes autoimmune thyroid disease? And their conclusions were that there's two there's two existential causes, things that we can't really control, and that's age and gender. Mm -hmm. So older we could become, female gender, those things are big known drivers of that. Then they argue that of all the other, there's many other things that could be possible causes or contributors, but many of them are not relevant after the fact. There's a saying how, you know, the horse is out of the barn. Well, closing the barn door won't bring the horse back. You know, so right, the right. cause was the door was left open, but yeah. closing the door doesn't really fix the problem anymore. So a lot of issues are thought to be like that. You know, radiation, you know, back when people would have mm. their tonsils irradiated for a sore throat, that could give rise to thyroid cancer. Mm. But that's not really something you can treat with radiation or by simply avoiding radiation. Right. So they argued that iodine was the one other thing that was a clear non-irrefutable cause that also led to actionable treatment options. And they went on to say that of all the other causes or contributors to thyroid disease, not only were none as relevant of iodine, but they argued that all of them combined were not as relevant as iodine. Mm. Yeah, so iodine is playing a huge role in addition mm -hmm. to those other factors you mentioned. Was it uh, gender and age, age. right? Gender yep. and age, okay. Um, now, what you said was amazing because intuitively I've, I've sort of come to this conclusion as I've you know, helped patients over the years, uh, but you just said it in a much more eloquent way with the, the, the barn door analogy, which, which I love. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, in, in the case of causes of Hashimoto, so. Epstein-Barr virus, H. pylori, these get brought up a lot. Would these fall more into the camp of associated conditions or would these be causal or uh, potential causes or where do those sort of fit in here? They've been explored causes and they mm -hmm. have been things that have been shown to be associated, but mm -hmm. not so much the direct links and not so much the clear reversal by addressing them. Mm -hmm. And I, I want to I say too that many of these other things are quite relevant to someone's health and well-being. So I don't want to say that you should ignore any other problems. Yeah. I'm just saying there's no clear data saying that this is the smoking gun for most thyroid disease and that fixing that fixes the thyroid. Mm -hmm. So yeah, fix a problem if you got it, but just know that maybe more than that to help your thyroid. For sure. And I, I think people, I think people have come to this conclusion as they've treated them or tried to treat themselves, right? Because if you, I see a lot of people as they seem to have some sort of event and then they have Hashimoto's or at least they correspond temporally to one another, but then treating whatever cause that doesn't reverse the Hashimoto. So that's like that barn door analogy, right? Um, and maybe, maybe some, maybe genetics are playing a role there and susceptibility to environmental factors and things like that. Um, you know, and, and oftentimes it's hard to know for sure. We probably will never know, you know, mm -hmm. um, we just have this, this data, as you mentioned, to, to help sort of guide us. Now, what I do want to talk about is sort of shift into this idea of iodine avoidance. Um, so we have, we talked about these groups sort of briefly before where, you know, some people are, let's, let's avoid iodine 100%. Let's take massive doses of iodine. Let's take sort of just the RDA doses of iodine, that 50 to maybe 200, 150 microgram dose range. Um, and and I, I've seen some of your work, which suggests iodine avo avoidance may be a potential therapy as well. So maybe could you speak to this idea of, of iodine sure. avo avoidance and where that fits in? Sure. So back to just to mention the, the RDA, the recommended dietary mm -hmm. intakes, those are, those are fine for most people. And mm -hmm. in terms of looking at populations, the World Health Organization has broken down six distinct iodine levels. And they've shown that those vulnerable to thyroid disease stay safest between about 50 and 200 micrograms per day. And I want to expand too, people often think about how much they would take in supplements. 
That's your total day's intake. That's mm-hmm. not the dose on a bottle of supplements because you're getting it from food. We'll talk about, you know, topical, there's cosmetic sources of that. Mm-hmm. And then the amount in supplements is often much greater than expected. And some foods can have a lot more than you'd think. So that's the total day's intake. That's not how much you want to see on a label of a supplement bottle. So yeah, 50 to 200 is probably safe for someone who has thyroid disease or is prone to it. Now, what's kind of the newer chapter in a lot of my work is that there can be a deliberate strategy of going lower to help reverse the problem. And there's good data supporting that. So this is not saying everyone should avoid all iodine. Mm-hmm. All foods have some iodine. No one can avoid all iodine. And iodine is not a bad guy. Right. But as a strategy, there's a window of somewhere below about 100 micrograms in which adult thyroid disease has a very high rate of reversal. So, and and that, that's not true for all adults with thyroid disease, but for many it is, and it's a safe strategy to test out. Okay. So the idea behind this, this idea would be, uh, potentially you, if you are in that, that population, which is sensitive to, or intolerant to iodine, we'll say, and you have probably perhaps been exposed to more iodine than you're even aware of. And this has potentially triggered your thyroid disease and therefore removing it, or at least avoiding it for some period of time or lowering your iodine dose may be therapeutic in the sense that it may be curative to your thyroid condition. Is that sort of a correct sequence of events? That's totally true. And here's a few more mechanisms to expand upon that. So we talked before about how iodine causes this oxidative harm within the thyroid. So the thyroid gets rid of iodine in two ways, one of which is making thyroid hormone. Hmm. The other one is non-hormonal iodine excretion. Number two it's there and I'm a little OCD, so I can't ignore things that are there, sure, but it's yeah. almost not there. There's I really see. almost no non, non-hormonal iodine excretion. The amounts like are almost infinitesimal, even less than that probably. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's, yeah. So if someone has hypothyroidism, they're on medication for that, by and large, they're already putting out too little thyroid hormone mm-hmm. and their medication supplies a lot of their body's needs. Right. So they're not eliminating much iodine. Mm. So whatever excess they got, they might not have had a crazy amount but they might've hit some threshold by which now there's too much in the gland Mm -hmm. and they don't have an opportunity to reverse that excess because Mm -hmm. through medication, through even a rather reasonable intake, there's just a threshold coming in by which they can't get rid of the excess. There's no gradient. So you've got to get below some threshold to allow that gradient to get that excess out of the gland. And that makes perfect sense, uh, especially if you understand thyroid physiology, as I'm sure you do. So any patient who is a thyroid patient who's listening to this, as, as Alan has said, you know, when you take thyroid medication, you're supplementing what your body would be producing naturally. So if you're taking mm-hmm. that, your body's not producing it, which means iodine is, if I'm understanding this and following this correctly, is going to cause a buildup, right? Because what else can I, it do? You can't if, get rid of it. Yeah. You're not making hormone. So then your tolerance would be even lower, right? Because mm-hmm. you, you you would be, let's say, if you were at that 50 microgram range to 200, maybe you're consuming 150, but maybe it needs to be 75 or 50 or even potentially lower. Well, the 150 period. might have never been harmful to begin with, but it may not be low enough to reverse the situation. Mm-hmm. It might not be a big enough deficit to where you can clear out that excess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I love this approach, right? Because it's, it's basically saying, let's take a minimally invasive approach to see if this is a solvable problem for you. Um, mm-hmm. and, and if it can potentially lead to thyroid patients getting off of their thyroid medication, that's great, right? That would, that would mm-hmm. be the, that would be a great goal. Um, so in terms of statistics and how often you are seeing this uh, happen, is there any way to sort of predict who would fit into this category? Cause as you mentioned, it's not all thyroid patients, mm-hmm. you know, how can we, or, or is there any way aside from just trial and error to figure out who is in this group and, and how big well, is this group by the way? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to pull out two populations. There's those who are on medication, those who are not quite simply. Mm-hmm. They're called medication naive or medication tolerant. Mm. And those who are not yet on medication, the clinical trials have shown that disease reversal 
happens to about 90, or I'm sorry, disease improvement, I should say, occurs to about 95 or 97% of people who embark upon lower iodine diets. That's awesome. Uh, one big paper to detail that one showed that people that had average TSH scores of 14.1 mm. and had been roughly there for the last several years, they did nothing other than getting below that iodine target. Mm. Now, not everyone achieved that. We'll come back to them. Okay. But the group as a whole, 78.3% of them had totally normal thyroid function, average TSH scores below three by the definition of the study within three months. That was all they did. Now, many people had TSH scores in the 50, 50 to 200 range. Yeah, many wow. of them were not in that 78%. So they weren't in that category, but they improved a lot. They probably just needed more time. Mm. So, and then also many people who are not at 70.3%, didn't achieve the target. They weren't totally compliant. They weren't well enough informed, whatever. So if you look at those who were compliant, and if you define that as big improvements, that was that 97%. So most are radical improvements. Now, the other big category is those that are already on medication. And you asked about how to predict who can improve and who cannot. Mm -hmm. So there've been several recent studies on the idea of de-prescribing. So in conventional medicine, they're realizing that a whole lot of folks out there are on thyroid medication, it's not helping them, and they probably never needed it to begin with. Mm -hmm. So what do we do with all these people? And they're trying mm -hmm. to figure that out. Yeah. Well, those who are likely to not need the medicine, so we, we can we can exclude those who lack a thyroid, right? Mm -hmm. They're, right. they're mm -hmm. not likely. I actually have seen that, believe it or not. Oh, really? <laughs> Do they have extra thyroidal gland tissue somewhere? Or? Yeah, they yeah. Li likely didn't get all of it. They did have yeah. some regrow and they needed no Medicaid. That was weird. So that's yeah, yeah, yeah. normal. <laughs> right, it's unusual, yeah, yeah. So let's put them to the side. Okay. So of those who are on medication, the, the higher their TSH score at time of diagnosis, it predicts their likelihood of needing to stay on it. When they have overt hypothyroidism, that means they also had a T4 that was below range. When they had subclinical disease, meaning their T4 was not yet below range, the level of TSH elevation is not a predictor. Mm. It's not really a big factor that way. The other big consideration is how high is their dose relative to their body's requirements. So if someone's taking a dose that's as much or more than their body would ever make, given their age, size, gender, other factors, mm. and they're still breaking even, there's not a lot of residual hormone output. But on the other hand, if they're on an amount that's smaller than they would need and they're stable, we know they're making some. So those are two things that make someone more or less likely. But Many papers have shown that of those on medication, even ignoring those factors, somewhere around 40% can do nothing strategic whatsoever, just lower the doses on a schedule mm. and to be fine without it. That's huge. One, one paper gave very basic recommendations for iodine avoidance, and they saw that roughly 84% of people could do less medication or no medication and not have a worsening of their labs or their symptoms. This is, this is amazing information for thyroid patients, I think. And, um, you know, this is why I say I'm really grateful for the, the, this work that you're doing, pushing this information out there, because a lot of this, I kind of had some understanding existed, but not to the degree that you're sort of explaining here. So I'm it's grateful. It's blown for, me away too. It's pretty yeah, cool. <laughs> this is, this is awesome stuff because we don't really want to have people on medication if we have, if we have to, right. Especially mm -hmm. with all these issues and reformulations and um, supply chain issues, you know, you don't want to have to be relying on something if you don't have to. And to the point you mentioned previously, there may be some patients out there thinking, well, if I was put on thyroid medication, that must mean that I need it. And I can't tell you, I've lost track of the number of stories where I hear patients who have been on thyroid medication for 20, 30 years. They don't even have any idea why they're put on it in the beginning. And perhaps these are some of the people you're talking about in here where maybe they never needed to be on it to begin with. You know, thyroid management has changed and probably will continue to at least tighten, especially with the 
emergence of this information over the next, you know, five to 10 years, I would imagine. And so you can imagine what happened maybe 30, 40 years ago. And so, uh, yeah, to anyone out there listening, this, you know, this is a good potential option. Now I would say, um, Alan, how would somebody, if they're interested in this, what would this, can, can this be done with a conventional doctor? You know, is this an easy thing to do? How, how could you help guide somebody do this sort of thing if they wanted to try and de-prescribe? You know, I've, I've looked at some of your work as well, and you've done some, a lot of really good things. And you've lamented about just the lack of understanding amongst a lot of doctors out there. And I'm, I'm with you on that. Mm -hmm. So I, I recently founded a nonprofit, the American College of Thyroidology. We're volunteer-led, and we try to train doctors and practitioners on things like this. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's one resource that's available. But you're right, many are not aware of this potential of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is unfortunate. So you kind of have to, I guess, go to a, a, a physician maybe who is aware of this, um, you know, within using the guidelines that you mentioned before. What, that was the American College of Thyroidology? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. act, act, act. thyroid.org. Okay. So if anyone's interested in that, I, you know, recommend using that resource to try and find a physician then it sounds like. Um, so uh, Alan, another thing that I wanted to ask you about were these potential, you kind of brushed on it a little bit um, previously, but I want to go into a little more detail. And that is this idea of hidden sources of iodine. Um, and, you know, maybe you could expand on, there's a lot of people I think who are looking at just the back of their supplements and saying, okay, it's hundred micrograms of iodine. That must be my daily dose. But I think there's more to that. Um, could you maybe outline what you were referring to when you said there's, they're in potentially cosmetics and other medications and, and supplements may not be as forthright as you might think with the total iodine content found within them. Could you expand on that topic? Sure. To hit the last point, iodine is a tough thing to process because it's so chemically unstable. Mm. So one paper took a list of 120 popular prenatal multivitamins and randomly selected 70 of them to assay their iodine content. And it compared the actual measured iodine content against the labeled content. Mm. Um, not one of the 60 was within 10% of the, of the labeled content. Wow. Many, many had three or four times above their labeled content. Jeez. Okay. So, so yeah, you, you really don't need to add in more than what you're getting already with supplements, mm. but if you do, you're probably getting more than you think. Right, right. <laughs> um, you mentioned cosmetics. Mm -hmm. So Iodine, again, it's a really useful chemical. It does a great job at making creams stay silky smooth and not get infected and you know, not have things settle out of them. Mm -hmm. But when we look at the math, um, even the smallest amounts of it in a cream, even though that they may be you know, one or 2% of a cream might be an iodine ingredient, even though that ingredient might only be 12% iodine, even though our skin only absorbs 4% of it, once we, once we convert gram things down to micrograms, it still adds up. So uh, polypyloviridone or PVP is one of the most common sources in a lot of cosmetics. If you get natural cosmetics, it's the same thing, but they call it sea vegetable extract or kelp extract. Mm. And it's a useful ingredient in the creams. Mm -hmm. But if you run the math and I thought this through, so a woman's going to use like 10, 20 grams of conditioner on her hair. That'll sit in place for a couple minutes. Mm -hmm. And that's going to cover a fair amount of skin surface area. Given, given like 1% PVP in a conditioner and given 12% iodine in PVP, given 4% intact skin absorption, you can, that 20 grams ends up being about 2,300 micrograms of iodine in the bloodstream. Mm. So like 10 times above a safe upper limit from one shampoo application. Ooh, yeah. So it's in a lot of personal care products. A lot of them I don't think are relevant because many things, the volume we use is small and the amount of skin contact is minuscule. Probably like mascara or hairspray could be big examples of that. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not really absorbing that much. Mm -hmm. But other things, yeah, conditioner, body lotions, face creams, you're eating that stuff and the mm -hmm. amounts you're eating are appreciable. Mm 
Mm. Yeah. And I think, I think patients tend to forget, you know, the, the skin is, is an organ, it's a tissue and it has absorbable properties. You know, generally speaking, it's designed to keep things from getting in, but things do make it through. You know, we, we put medications on topically. And I remember I had this uh, experience where I was, I was before I, you know, could sort of understood things a little bit better, but I was treating perioral oral dermatitis and I was using a, a hydrocortisone cream and we, I was having the, this person put it around their eyes. Cause that's where this was. And I didn't know at the time I eventually learned later, but the, the, you can actually get a lot of absorption when you put things around the eyes compared to other places of your body, right? The yeah. skin is really, the skin is really thin there. Um, the, the venous system is, is superficial. So it gets in there. So you're absorbing more than you would, let's say on the back of your arm or on your sure. hand or something like that. So when you put things even on your scalp, which again, has a very complex uh, venous system and arterial system, it, you're probably going to absorb more than potentially you would other places of the body. So that's really, I think a good thing to, to mention and to know. Now, along these lines, we have this idea of iodine testing. And I know that you've talked a lot about iodine testing in the past. So if maybe you're a thyroid patient listening to this and you're thinking, well, surely I should be able to test and figure out how much iodine I'm, I have in my body to see if I need to go down or you know, potentially use more, which doesn't seem to always be the case, especially for the population we're talking about. But where does iodine testing fit into this? How accurate is it? Um, if somebody was to use an iodine test, which one would they use? Well, Weston, here's the thing. If, if I could give you an answer that I'd like to give you, it would be this. It would be iodine tests are perfectly accurate. They're readily available. They're non-invasive. They're, you know, you could do them at home and you can know exactly where you are. Yeah. That's what I'd love to give you. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we're not going there though. <laughs> but here's the truth. Uh, so there's three goals for iodine testing. There's nutritional status, there's toxicology, and there's iodine excretion. Mm. So there's how much your body has compared to what it needs whether or not you're at a level that's actually damaging your organs, and then how much of it you're dumping. Those are three different things you can measure for. Okay. And the other, the other grid to put out is there's tests for people and there's tests for populations. Mm -hmm. So tests for populations, what's good about them is that a test for a person could be incredibly variable. But if you're testing a thousand people, all that, and you, you just want to know the status of that group, all the variability means nothing because mm -hmm. it's all going to average itself out and you'll right. still know the group status. So there's a lot of very good nutritional tests for iodine for populations. And the simplest one is a random urinary iodine. Mm -hmm. Also 24 hour urinary iodine levels are used quite a bit. Now, when those tests are tried to be translated into individuals, it takes multiple tests to be within a certain threshold. If a goal is to be within 90% accuracy, it takes a little over 300 random urinary iodine tests. Right. Well, now, if someone wants to dig deeper and do a 24-hour urinary iodine, that helps. Mm -hmm. Now you only have to do about 270 tests to be within 90% oh. accuracy. <laughs> Great. Yeah. yeah. So Much more manageable. So, so nothing practical. Yeah. So now iodine toxicity. This mostly comes up from a medication called amiodarone. Mm -hmm. That's one used for regulating cardiac rhythm. Mm -hmm. And some people have just just debilitating even fatal side effects months and months after using it. Amiodarone is iodine-based and it has hundreds of micrograms of iodine per pill. Mm. And most of the complications come from the iodine. Mm. People can take months to excrete it. So when there's so much in your body that your kidneys can no longer get rid of as much as is coming in, then your serum levels finally start to build up. So serum levels do reflect iodine toxicity. They have no relationship at all to nutritional status of iodine. So you could be marginally iodine deficient, you could be marginally iodine excess, and your serum could be anywhere. It's only when you're at overt toxicity that serum levels come up. So the last goal is iodine excretion. So if someone is doing a low iodine diet, either to help improve their thyroid or because they're going to do an iodine uptake scan or radioactive iodine ablation, 
they may need to know how readily they're excreting iodine. And in those cases, you can do urinary iodine to creatinine ratio tests. And the goal of being at a low iodine window for all those applications is typically below 100 micrograms of iodine per gram of creatinine. So it doesn't say your nutritional status. It just shows, are you dumping a lot of it? And the only time I really find that useful is if someone's doing a low iodine diet to help their thyroid, they're three months into it and they're seeing no improvement. Then they can do that test. And if they're still above that threshold, either they need more time to see the benefits because there was so much there, or there's some hidden sources they've not identified just yet. But some of the studies showing that low iodine diets could reverse thyroid disease, they did try to check people beforehand and see, oh, maybe the non-responders were low in iodine going into it, you know, or maybe the good responders were high in iodine. There was no relationship. Mm. So there's really not a test that you can do to say, oh, this would help me or this would not. Mm. Yeah. One, I, oh, go ahead. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, the OCD thing again. So no, you're for good. completion, one, I won't talk about the skin iodine unless you're also curious, but yeah. there is also serum thyroglobulin. So mm. not antithyroglobulin, but serum thyroglobulin and also ultrasound thyroid volume. Both of these have a good inverse relationship to iodine status, but the difficulty is they're not accurate in those with autoimmune thyroid disease. So yeah, that's pretty much the lay of the land for iodine testing. Yeah, which, which is unfortunate, right? Because I think patients might think to themselves, well, if we can test it, then we can have an idea of what to do. Uh, sure. But it sounds like it's not that clear cut. It's and not helpful. Yeah, not, not exactly. And so I want to come back to something you mentioned. I believe it was the gentleman that you were treating in the 70s. That, that was the guy who had the iodine challenge test, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe could you speak to this? Because if we're talking about iodine, um, and we're talking about this, this tolerance, which is lower than the, than the average population. And now we have a lot of, let's say, integrative, functional-minded, um, natural medicine practitioners who are recommending certain iodine testing, which may sort of conflict with this idea that, that you've put forth here. And this is the idea of iodine challenge right. testing, right? So um, what would you say to somebody who is thinking about getting this iodine challenge testing done? Maybe you could explain what that is a little bit more and perhaps why they may want to consider another option. I'm glad you mentioned that because that is, that is commonly available for people and they do ask about that. So mm. the rationale, and this goes back to a group that launched a lot of these new iodine ideas, the, the rationale makes enough sense. The idea was that if you take a lot of iodine and your body needs it, mm. you won't excrete as much. Your body will hold on to it and you'll have a, you won't have as much show up in your urine afterward. But if you take a high dose and you don't need it, you'll excrete more of it. And that seems, it seems intuitive and rational enough. But the funny thing is, if we were to think about like, you know, BPA, like plastic toxins or mercury, you wouldn't say take a bunch and see if your body needs it. You wouldn't right, say if, yeah. you, if it's stuck there, you must have needed it. We wouldn't yeah. think that. <laughs> no, definitely not. Yeah. So we now know that when we take a bunch of iodine, we do get rid of more iodine, but mm. not through the urine. We get mm. through rid of more of it through the sweat and through the stool. And then also it takes us time to get rid of it. So population studies have shown that when the intake of iodine increases, urinary excretion increases, but it might be three or six months later. It's not all by tomorrow. And in fact, uh, ZRT laboratories, they did a study on this, this exact uh, proposition. And they took individuals and get the prescribed, in this case, they gave a 25 milligram or 25,000 microgram dose of iodine. And they followed that with 24 hour urinary iodine tests. What they did differently is they kept doing 24 urinary iodine levels for two weeks. And what they saw was people that took a lot peed a lot more out but not all tomorrow. They were peeing a lot out as long as they were testing it. So, so yeah. So I, I would say 
just given the information we've discussed here, probably not a good idea to undergo that test, given the fact that iodine testing in general is not very accurate, doesn't give you necessarily the information you're looking for, and has the potential to be harmful in the sense that you're consuming a a significant amount. Now, oh, sorry, did you have a comment on that? Well, just expand on that. So these are micrograms, you know, Mm -hmm. so a a gram is like a paperclip. And a microgram is like a thousandth of that. So I'm sorry, a millionth of that. So halfway between is a milligram, which is like a grain of salt. Mm. So a milligram to a microgram is like a paperclip to a cow as far yeah. as the mass change. Right, yeah. <laughs> so a grain of salt to a microgram is like, yeah, paperclip to a cow the other way. Yeah. So these are tiny amounts and people are, are consuming 25,000 micrograms. This is like 400 times a safe upper limit for anyone prone mm-hmm. to thyroid disease or not. And these things are commonly used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen that as well. I mean, you know, obviously, um, and, and they can potentially cause problems as, you, as you've mentioned in, in um, your experience with that gentleman. And then I've also seen that anecdotally as well. One thing that you mentioned that I wanted to, to talk about just for a second was this idea that you were saying iodine uh, can potentially get excreted through this, the sweat in the stool. Did I understand mm-hmm. that correctly? Yep. And and if that's the case, then this, I think, probably has implications for uh, further iodine retention, because especially in the case of low thyroid function, constipation, and so on, is there a, a physiolog- physiologic mechanism by which the body will reabsorb that iodine if it stays in the stool too long? Will constipation lead to um, an exacerbation of those levels, or does that play a role at all here? You know, it's plausible. Iodine gets in and out anyway. We can actually breathe in iodine. Oh, okay. People living by big beds of sea vegetables mm. have more in their bodies than they would have other yeah, we can breathe it in. We can excrete it by any mechanism. We know that the excretion is normally primarily renal, but at the exposure to higher amounts, then things change. So I'm aware of the, the rate of fecal excretion via biliary routes mm-hmm. increasing after the renal threshold has been passed. Mm-hmm. As far as reabsorbed from constipation, I've not heard that either way, but mm-hmm. it, it, it can absorb across the colon lining. We do see that when iodine was used for in some retention enemas in the past, or also when iodine is used in bladder installations. So yeah, plausible. Okay. I just didn't know if there was any any uh, literature on that or whatever. Just it might play a role up potentially, but it doesn't sound like it's a, it's a big thing. Um, you know, what the next thing I kind of want to jump to just in the last couple of minutes here is just this idea. And I want to run your, get your opinion on this since, um, you know, see kind of where you fit. But there's this idea in medicine about um, optimal thyroid lab tests. And so there's this idea that you know, the, the reason patients are not feeling well, they're taking their medication and, and we've, we'll talk maybe about the comorbidities. Well, I don't know if we'll have time. Maybe we'll have to do that in another episode, but uh, which would have been a great topic to talk about. But there's these people who are trying to explain away this idea that they're not feeling well by stating that they're not within these optimal ranges. And, and this exists for TSH, free T3, free T4. Now, where do you sort of uh, fit on, on, on this idea? Now, do you, do you believe there's any merit to this idea? Um, is it mostly... Uh, inconsistent with what you're seeing practically and clinically, um, or is there any merit to it? Where, where do you kind of sit on that idea? On yeah, topic? we could have a long talk about this. It's a fun one. So yeah, yeah, it is I'll, for sure. Yeah. I'll break this out into a couple of categories too. There's okay. those, there's thinking about this as a template to fine tune medication dosages. And there's thinking about this as determine who should start medication. Mm. So two very different things. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't talk about optimal as being worthwhile for starting medications. Mm-hmm. You know, we could talk a lot about that. And, but in terms of those who are on medications, there is good data arguing that they have different symptom panels and different mm-hmm. risk outcomes per their levels, even within the normal range. There's good data on that. And I should expand too. You talked about TSH, free T3, free T4. Mm-hmm. So the bulk of this literature is on TSH levels and a lot of people in natural medicine talk about 
the free hormones and arguing that if TSH should be low normal, which is largely true in this optimal lens, then the others should be high normal. And that also seems intuitive. I used to teach about the TSH and the free hormones sitting on a seesaw, like when one's high, the other's low. The drawback is there's, there was one recent paper that showed <clears throat> that for every, every hundred fold change for TSH, there's a two fold change in T3 and T4. And that's because the T3 and T4 are so highly buffered by the body. So when there's too much, you'll first see the TSH dip long, long, long before you'll ever see the other hormones elevate because the body excretes them faster and breaks them down more quickly and buffers it in a lot of ways. And then vice versa is also true. So when the TSH gets higher, it gets high for a long ways before you ever see the other hormones drop because the body holds them longer and buffers mm. them and utilizes them differently. So you can juggle a long ways with a T3 and T4. So they're simply less sensitive. They're meaningful. They're not meaningless. Mm -hmm. and then also when we look at healthy populations, those that don't have thyroid disease, we don't see that they consistently have high levels of the free hormones. They mm. do generally have lower levels of the TSH, still normal, but generally lower. And then furthermore, there have been studies looking at populations that have higher levels of T3 and T4. They're not the healthiest people. They have higher rates of certain health problems. So the thought in endocrinology is, you know, how can we mimic the healthy population as much as possible? What are the markers that are found there? And so, yes, if someone is on treatment and they're on a dose that keeps their TSH on the high side of the normal range, that may be an opportunity for improvement, both for well-being and also for less strain on their thyroid. If someone's not yet on treatment, I don't think about the optimal ranges as goalposts to initiate therapy because that would have everyone on thyroid medication. Exactly. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a potentially big problem. And, and there's this mindset of, you know, why haven't conventional doctors adopted this, um, this, this mindset? Why, why, why is there so much resistance there? And I think, as you just mentioned, that's a big reason. If you took those optimal ranges that a lot of people, and I'm guilty of doing this as well as recommending these ranges. Um, if, if we took that and just tested hundred people, we'd probably find that, you know, 80, 80, 90% of people would be hypothyroid when in reality sure. they're not, you know? And I think also just well, by even if they were, the deeper question is, would the medication improve their health in some way? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And if we, we put these people on thyroid medication, that might cause more harm than good. And you have a lot of other issues. So I think, I think separating it is kind of the, the same sort of way that I've come to this is that if somebody's taking thyroid medication, they're probably should be looked at a little differently than the, the general population for that very reason. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there is some merit to this idea of optimizing it. Uh, depending on where you fit, where you fit, right? Not the people who haven't been diagnosed. As a screening test, it's, it would operate very poorly, but potentially in treating those people who have active thyroid disease, who are taking thyroid medication, it might have some, some relevance in that population. And, and there's population differences per, per age, per gender, per pregnancy status, per past mm. structural thyroid disease, mm. cardiovascular disease, or certain things that, that influence and, uh, and uh, associate how that would come out. But yeah, that, there's still relevance to it. Okay. Yeah. And um, like I said, like you said, we could talk about this for a long time. In fact, we'll probably have to probably have to do another one if, if you have time, because <laughs> I think we could, we could talk for, like I said, uh, hours on these topics, but um, Alan, it's been awesome having you. Uh, I know there's probably going to be questions from people and they're going to want to know how to get in touch with you. So could you tell people how to get in touch with you? Maybe more information about your website or any other things that you have going on, books, et cetera. Sure. So the latest book is the thyroid reset diet. That one really details how one can you know, eat healthy food. You can follow a diet you're on if you're already on one, but you can get to this low iodine window and often reverse thyroid disease. So that's out there. In terms of asking me questions, you know, simplest thing, 
most Mondays I do a thing I call office hours live. Mm. I get on Instagram and Facebook and I just answer live questions. So that's mm. awesome. typically right now it's a three o'clock Pacific and uh, yeah, Dr. Alan Christensen, Instagram and Facebook, and you can find me there and you can ask questions in real time. Just free thing. Happy to help out. Awesome. And, and as I said before, uh, I think Dr. Christensen, thank you so much for what you do. You've taught me so much. And this, this interview has been amazing. You're just a wealth of knowledge. And I don't, like I said, I don't know that anybody does more research on these topics than you. So the thyroid, the, all the thyroid patients out there are so grateful to have you, including me. So thank you so much for your time. <laughs> Appreciate that. No problem. And that's all I have for you guys today. So otherwise we'll see you in the next one.